With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, once again, this is Michael Adams. Enough for the truth, one man's journey to find it. And this is part two of the Source family. How cults like the LDS, the SDA, and... Uh, the JWs and others, like the Roman Catholic Church, get started one way or the other. One thing I do seem to notice is there always seems to be a charismatic leader. Um, there seems to be pretty women involved and um, sex, uh, a lot of cult symbology, mind control, and group think. One of the things is think about here too is social pressure once you get to a certain number of people that doesn't take that very many a half a dozen to start out with most um, uh, this whole accountability thing <clears throat> you know people watching over each other making sure everybody follows the rules that's helped maintains it and then we, I, my own personal experience with first growing up uh, a Mormon and uh, LDS, and that the prophet, the twelve apostles, the Quorum of the Seventy, all these men, in particular the the uh, the president or the apostle, seems to be this quote unquote infallible man, and has the legal right to change things as times goes on. As we learned in the first part, that James Baker, or Yod, <laughs> or as he'd like to call himself, Yahuwah, um, like to call himself God, <clears throat> acted as such. And as it went to his head, he started sleeping with teenage girls and taking, amazingly, 13 wives. That's a special number, 13, a very occult number. And then eventually died in, in a hang gliding accident where he broke his back and died. Once he realized he wasn't God and he misled all these hundreds of young people, impregnated so many women, abandoned uh, a couple wives previously, actually three wives altogether, including the wife that he started the cult with. Um, by the way, his wife suffers from. Uh, fibromyalgia, and so I can ha I have uh, sympathy for somebody who has multiple sclerosis. I notice like the chronic pain and how distracting and devastating it is. <clears throat> and um, it's an annoyance for the person suffering it and uh, the people around them too because people want you to just get your act together, but you can't. <laughs> because what they what they fail to realize is that something going on internally and not externally. It'd be much easier if I lost a limb. I guess I got much more sympathy. Anyways, 
in the MDA and prefer not losing any limbs or having this. So, But uh, it's interesting, too, how cults, a lot of these cults, they use things like uh, vegetarianism uh, or veganism, uh, diet, healthy eating and living is a platform to then branch off into their uh, religious uh, bent, if you will. <clears throat> Anyways, this next round, we're going to listen to, um, let's see, Revisiting uh, the Source Family. And so a young man did a nice our, uh, documentary on it. First, uh, that 30-plus minutes, it's uh, mostly him interviewing ex-members of it, some that still are members of it, apparently, even though the, the, the church itself apparently demised. They still have, let's see, let's look, they have um, web websites, and they still, and this, I guess, apparently it's very lucrative still. There's people making money off this. You look at the source family.com. You can buy, uh, purchase movies, screenings, press. Uh, uh, let's see what this is. This is the movie. Okay, we're supposed to go to a different one. There, I know there is something there because I saw it. Yeah, let's go down here. Oh, Father Yod. Yahoo.org. Uh, a time uh, in the ni- in 1971, a time that an explosion of consciousness. <laughs> Gosh. And anyways, you could look at that if you want. And it's got all the the hippie stuff. Um, they they got it presented more like a real type of religion type of thing. Uh, we're religious. They got uh, Father Yod. James Baker at all dressed up in with his hood and long beard looking like a prophet. All the young people with her. <clears throat> you can look at the, all sorts of things. Music from the source. Books from the source. Uh, the Mystic Road, Father's Morning Meditations, teachings, etc. So people are still profiteering from it. Obviously it's still influencing us to this day. Uh, a big influence on the New Age movement, or the New Age movement was an influence on it, one of the two. Uh, it's also influenced the postmodern church, and a lot of people all right around, <clears throat> including myself. You know, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, like so many of these young folks who end up joining the uh, Source family. <clears throat> looking for a sense of belonging, some direction, some hope, and a med insane world, a fallen world led by Satan, and unknowingly to be trapped in one of Satan's traps. <laughs> hey, how about that? So anyways, uh, yeah, let's learn more about this. Uh, for those who say they're not interested, hey, that's all right. There'll be plenty of other things to be interested about. But my argument why I share this is not to promote the Source family. Is there anything of any great uh, well, value other than uh, to help us understand how cults are started, uh, how very decent people end up joining it, um, people who I think mean well are yearning for love and acceptance, 
how that group and a uh, powerful, influential uh, guru, leader type person like a Joseph Smith or Brigham Young or Russell or, um, you know, even Seventh-day Adventists and Ellen G. Waite, they tried to make her out to be that way, but did she really run the show anyways? I don't know. Obviously, she didn't. She was just a figurehead. But there, again, she was. Um, and then we look at the papacy. We look at the Pope. All these idolatrous organizations where we worship men, fallen men, and our gullibility and our vulnerableness. Because we want to belong. We want to feel uh, security. We want to feel that we have purpose. And um, they take advantage of all these the nature of humanity for their own exploitation. And uh, I tell you one thing, James Baker was another one of those guys who was very successful at doing it. One of many. Especially back then, apparently there were several thousand different types of communes throughout the States. There still are some today. Still young people trying to do the same thing as they tried to do before. Trying to make sense of the world it's sterile, and prison-like, all gritted out. Everyone lives in boxes, staring at a box of screens in front of it. Us flashing away. All of us, we want it. We want to belong. We want to have somebody that loves us and embraces us. We don't want to have meaning in our lives. We want to have greater meaning than just uh, fighting papal wars or... Uh, uh, you know, oppressing each other and all that kind of thing, you know. Uh, funny how many of these people ended up in the family, either because of millionaires and it's things like uh, computer programming and software, um, uh, starting their own little cults and spiritual movements. Interesting. Not all of them were end up being failures. Many of them end up becoming successful. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Is it has anything to do with the cult called uh, Source, the Source family? Was it their own brilliance? I don't know. It's very interesting. The more and more you think about it, one thing is very uh, clear. Looking at this picture of this group, that ninety-nine percent of them are white, white kids. Very few Hispanics, one or two African Americans. Um, what's up with all that? Now you look now at Dave McGowan's work and at Laurel Canyon, a weird scenes of in the canyon about Laurel Canyon and all of the things that were coming out of that region with the hippie movement and all that. Um, and somehow a connection with the government as well. We look at James Baker himself who was a military vet and bragged to all these impressionable young people of how he killed other human beings and his dark nature, his dark side, and how spirituality changed him. Clearly, it didn't change him at all because in the end, he was having sex with multiple women. Many of them were under the age of 18, having babies left and right and leaving, basically abandoning three wives and their kids. <laughs> His kids, that is. This man was nothing like he was trying to present him to be. 
But he had the charisma. He had the personality. He had the charm. He knew how to manipulate vulnerable people. He knew how to manipulate women. Um, he knew how to talk the good talk. He's a good salesman. Brings me back to a guy like Joseph Smith once again. Or the papacy, the Pope. Uh, a priest. A lot of these, uh, a good politician. A lot of these uh, leaders in our lives that really, the only reason they're leaders is because they have a charismatic personality and know how to BS their way into a woman's pants or into a man's pocket. Very interesting, don't you think? Anyways, <clears throat> should be some use to somebody. If nobody else than myself, there's the cat again. Fine. You get out of there. You always over there. I'm not a big cat fan, but this cat I like. Except when she gets in the way. All right. Here we go. Revisiting Father and the Source Family. Cult leader Jim Baker. <laughs> Have you ever walked into your local Mardell store and been overwhelmed by the selection of Bibles? Hi, my name is Evan Wells. I am currently an American Studies and Media Studies student here at Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. As part of my senior comprehensive exercises, I've put together a small film for you on the subject of Yehoah 13 and the Brotherhood of the Source, which is a story of one 1970s Los Angeles guru and his rock and roll band, as well as the utopian vision put into practice, which is what some may call a cult, others a new religious movement, or more generally, a commune. With the help of my school, I spent close to a month traveling the west coast of the United States and on into Hawaii to locate and interview former members of the group, as well as their current reformation as the Source Foundation, which is a corporation with issued stock. To an outsider like myself, first approaching the Source family, it all seems a bit odd, a bit off the wall, a bit outside the box, so to say, but nevertheless fascinating. So with this film, and with myself acting as a bit of an intermediary, I'm going to attempt to show what all I've come to learn about the source and its first in command, Father Yod, aka Yehoah, or the man formerly known as Jim Baker. And so, my friends, I now present to you a retelling of the tales of Jim Baker and the Source family as they were introduced to me by former members of the group, who I'll introduce by name as we move along the film. So, without further ado, let's take a look. All over America, right after the 60s, after all of the madness, all of the fury, all of the tumult, all of the confrontation of the 60s, a lot of young people opted to drop out, to go to live in other places, to try to maybe return to the earth, to try to find a better way of life, to try to become uh, in tune with nature, to become at one or at peace or in harmony 
with the natural elements of the world. And they founded communes, if you will. Today in America, there are about one or 2,000 active communes where people still are living together communally, raising vegetables, crops, primarily vegetarians, having children collectively, and trying to exist in a culture divorced or separate from the conventional American culture. And one such commune that is enormously successful and self-supporting here in Los Angeles called the Brotherhood of the Source. They number about 400. They have their own vegetarian restaurant. They have a lavish home up in the mountains. They do have children in an open, free marriage situation. They are vegetarians. They are nudists. They practice a specific kind of meditative discipline. And they are a most unique and unusual group of people. One day I visited the Brotherhood of the Source commune to find out a little bit not only about vegetarianism, but about the communal way of life in America and whether or not it's working. Strip. 
30 wide and 30 deep with arms locked and full leg gear. And after they passed through the Sunset Strip, there wasn't so much as a lit cigarette left. It was gone. The movement was over on the Sunset Strip. So basically, uh, things went farther underground then. And that was the beginning of, of, of a spiritual movement that um, was, was, it was bound to evolve from, from that. I think that in the times, you know, the late 60s, early 70s, um, there was a great dissatisfaction and um, need for another model. Everything seemed a little funny to me, worldly. Uh, grocery shopping? What about spirit? You know, what about new? What about changing the world? You know, our generation of parents was uh, pretty um, just interested in the status quo and holding things all together the way they were, but we knew there was a great uh, hypocrisy going on and we all reacted to that and ended up, you know, meeting you know, and, and trying to understand about this great paradox of life. And uh, Jim Baker was actually one of the predominant founders of the Beatnik movement. He um, had a sandal shop on Sunset Strip, which, um, which was very creative and actually laid the quote-unquote footprint for the uh, sandal um, generation and the beatniks. Once he hit Hollywood, that started his whole opening up to a spiritual quest because there was so much happening there. There was a massive amount there. Was, everything you could think of is there and was there. All Plus, he was so involved in the health, health field there. He got involved with the... They were the beat generation on the West Coast, and they invented the health food industry. And, you know, they were bodybuilders. You know, the, the beat generation in New York were all shooting heroin and wearing sunglasses and playing bongo drums and drinking. You know, and were very nihilistic. You know, in, the, in California, they were all, you know, eating avocados and you know, pumping iron and, you know, playing around with their clothes off, I suppose, you know, creating an industry, you know, the health food or, you know, movement. His real health, his real interest in the health field began in 16 or 14, I think, right. he got an intense case of hemorrhoids, and it was so bad and he couldn't get it fixed, and he ended up going in for an operation. So he became fascinated with the subject of what causes health problems and how can you avoid them? And he began to read and study it and work under people who were, you know, ask people questions and basically began to realize that a lot of the causes of health issues were self-caused by the way that we handle our bodies, what we eat, and the way we abuse our bodies for disabilities. He taught that. That was the key foundation of the Soros family, I feel. And I know that that's what he brought a lot of people in from the world and healed them through Jesus and cleansing. They were actually living on a day-to-day basis. You know, all the things that embodied the spirit of, of kind of the, the transformation from our parents' generation to our generation. He began to um, understand that 
all of the people that were wandering around looking for spiritual consciousness had really come to that place because they did not have the, the proper family and father image in their lives. He would say that uh, it was like he opened up the newspaper to the one ads and he saw an ad in there that said, man wanted to play the role of God. And he went down and he got the part. And he'd laugh about it. He said, I went down and auditioned. He said, they gave me the part. So here he was, and that was uh, what he was devoted to do, to play the role of God. He was coming from very much on high, and most of us were very, very little babies. He called us little kitties because we were little kitties, and he was the big, big daddy. And He was a man, and you could tell that this guy had a tremendous amount of power and a tremendous amount of charisma, and that he, he just presented himself with the kind with the kind of attitude that I consider to be you know, what I want what I want it to be like. We all loved Yehoah unconditionally. We did not love each other unconditionally. A lot of us just put up with each other because we had the same common bond of loving Yehoah and the wisdom that he gave us. He was this great guy and always envisioned would be the perfect dad to have, you know, Santa Claus happy full of fun. Guy. As soon as I met Father, though, I knew right away that I had found something that that my inner soul had been seeking. And by the time I met Father, man, I was just lost. Just none of what they were saying about religions made any sense to me. And uh, Father and the family did. I, I I saw a man who had become God is, uh, is my take on him. Other people encountered Jim Baker. They just thought um, he was uh, an egomaniac, that um, he was obsessed with sex, that he was arrogant, that he was dangerous, you know. I saw something different. So that's what I got, you know. I got to be with, um, I got to be with God as my father. I was utterly convinced, you know, that uh, that I was living with God. And it wasn't like he was the only God, you know. No, it was just somebody that completely accepted, you know, that he was, or was as, as powerfully or as completely as anybody had ever done it, you know, in my experience. And uh, that uh, that endowed me with a sense of that um, I had an innate nobility. You know, it, it made me feel that I was abundant, that I was cherished, that I was loved unconditionally, that I was appreciated that everything was available to me, that um, anything I wanted I could have, you know, that, and that I was innately noble. And not to the exclusion of anybody else, you know. But I felt, uh, I felt tremendous security. Uh, that there was great affection for me, that there was appreciation for me, you know. I believe that was the rain from God. From God, and I believe Jehovah was God. 
There was no question in my mind about it. So if you saw this man, six foot six, and you look at him, and when the sun was on him, his hair was all curly, and it was down to here, and, and he had one strand that would be like, it was all like finely polished wire. It didn't look like hair. It looked like somebody curled up wire, real thin wire, and highly polished like a piece of gold or a piece of copper or a piece of black wire. Or So he had uh, seven different colors of hair. There was red and gold and uh, silver and black and white and uh, probably a little blue in there. <laughs> he had seven different colors, and every single strand was a different color. It was all highly polished. So if you look at a being like that, and you're sitting in front of him, and you're thinking, man, uh, if, uh, if I die and go to heaven, that's what I want God to look like. Just as I arrived, basically, he moved from being probably Yod to being Yehoah. And as Yehoah, he proved to me that he had attained God consciousness. He could teach in such a way that your head would be spun 360 degrees with what he said. And you, when you spun 360 degrees and he came back around, you'd say, God, how in the world could he be so conscious and speak on such high planes of wisdom? And by the time you had regained your awareness enough to listen to what he was saying, you would be aware that he was saying the exact opposite of what he just said, that spun your head 360, which meant that it would spin your head 360 again. And by the time he came back around and you're going, what the f- is going on here? What the hell is happening? How can he possibly be doing this? And you'd open your eyes and he'd be saying the reverse of it again. But each, low, each time taking it to a higher plane and taking you to that plane with him, and I still say, have no idea how he did it. Uh, you know, uh, I think all of us can relate to the Jedi. Yehoah is a Jedi. Master. He, he was a lot like uh, Obi Kenobi in Star Wars. He was, he was totally cut from that same cloth, you know, of the way or the hermit and the tarot deck who uh, never sought large numbers of followers, but he was always into quality, not quantity, you know, quality. One day with Yahuwah is like 10 lifetimes with the greatest kings on earth. He wasn't really concerned with being polite. He wasn't really concerned with tiptoeing around people, he basically, he just said whatever he felt like saying. And I never heard him say anything that wasn't right on. Although he was a very imposing person with his uh, demeanor and his fancy suits and his cane and his beard and his fedora and his his, uh, fancy car uh, with the YHVH for license plate. Uh, I'm trying to think of the name. What, what's the fancy uh, Rolls Royce? He had a Rolls Royce, and he was a dapper man about town, uh, known among Hollywood circles. Father was always in full control. He was the creator, the controller, the director, the producer, and anything that went down, whether it was with his women, uh, the family, the way things came down. It's because that's the way he wanted it. And that's the way it happened. I have never been of the mind that he was Jesus incarnate. But my own feelings are that there are many people who come to this earth 
that just are more enlightened than others, like Jesus, like Buddha, like Moses, like Krishna, and like so many others that probably never even got to be famous. And Yahweh is definitely in that crowd, you know. He, he was one of those beings. We had one person there who had attained it. And most people will think that this is a sales job that I'm trying to convince someone of something. No, no question in my mind. That man had attained God consciousness. I have to tell you, I spent eight years with this man, and never once, not one moment of one day was I ever disillusioned um, by anything that he ever did. Here comes Father, pulling up to the free concert that the family band's giving him. Yellow, cream-colored Mercedes, four-door. And, of course, the doors open, and... The women jump out, and as the car comes up, the women especially, yeah, the guys are kind of sauntering over, you know, but the women are in a rush to get over to the car, and they're all, like, jumping up and down, like, like Watusis, man. They're just, they're so high on the electricity. And you know, his father's father, man. I mean, if you, if you, you know, ever got the chance to see this man, this is like, well, first of all, anyone who can levitate 30 women off the ground and make them jump up and down without doing anything, uh, without trying, has got my vote. But, uh, but he was just the heaviest dude I ever met. Jim Baker had a... Uh, I mean, he's, he's, he's an Olympic champion. He had a life before he went and started his spiritual path, which was a spiritual path then, too. He had a really incredible, flawless reputation. Set the pace, and he was the leader. Um, Jim Baker was 
a great example of what America is all about. The jobs he would uh, take big blocks of ice and have to carry them up twice still. During the Depression, when he desperately needed a job, he talked of working, um, cleaning out the barges on the, uh, the river. And a lot of times they would deliver whatever, gravel or manure or fertilizer or whatever. And his job was to go down inside the sealed, more or less sealed hold of these boats and clean them out. But before that, there was somebody who was the DCC. All right, he joined the Civilian Conservation Corps. Which was very interesting program by President Roosevelt. Roosevelt. And he was just a young man, but he got a job. And they went out and did logging and building roads, really, really hard labor. And he worked among really hard working men. He lied about his age to get into the something. Maybe. He went into the Marines. And he was actually a sharpshooter. He was an eighth sharpshooter. But his first job was he went into the Marines and he said, I will teach your Marine Raiders martial arts. And this usually, when I think of this story, it usually gives me chills because if you walk into the Marine Raiders and say, I'm going to teach you martial arts, you better know what you're talking about because every one of them, one of them is going to go, come on, <laughs> teach me what you know. And not only did he do it, but he carried it off. And that was his position was to teach the Marine Raiders martial arts. So he went in on the USS Chicago, a warship, and it was out in Guadalcanal, and it was one of the ships that came under direct fire from the Japanese. When the battleship was going down and the, the Japs were scraping the, the water and shooting the shooting the enlisted men who were in there. He climbed. He wasn't a gunner. Um, he had been in the brig because his commanding officer, the, the next guy up, you know, in the chain of command, he was just enlisted, insulted his mother and he decked him or something, so they threw him in the brig and, and the planes come and uh, the kamikaze sinks the ship and the Jap zeros are flying overhead and they're all, they're all overboard and the Japs start you know, in defiance of the Geneva Convention or something, they start shooting all the guys in the water. And he gets so pissed off that he climbs back up on the battleship and gets it while it's going down, gets in a gun turret and shoots down nine Jap Zeros. It already shot down. He did go up and start shooting. And he shot down 12 planes. He was out of ammunition. His gun was out of ammunition. With one hand, he grabbed a 60-pound ammunition can, unloaded the gun with the other hand, simultaneously loaded the gun, drew a beat on, this, on the Japanese Zero. By this time, they could see each other's eyes. They were looking at each other's eyes, and the man had him in his gun when he was firing on him. The bullets were whizzing all around his head. He fired on the Zero and took him out. Dove from the ship, which was now sinking, and the ship sank in six minutes. It just collapsed and sank in six minutes. So the pressure to suck, the pressure to pull down was great. He had to swim with his Olympic strength to get away from the ship to keep him sucked under. The War Department hears about it and they get all excited. They decide to make a propaganda movie about it starring Ronald Reagan or something. 
and uh, and he goes home to Cincinnati, and you know he's 17 years old or something. They give him a ticket tape parade, but they don't give him the they don't give him the medal of honor. They don't give him the medal of honor, the Congressional Medal of Honor, because technically at the time he was in the brig and hadn't been cleared. He was headed for a court martial or something, so they they gave him some other medal. But you know. What a story. I mean, this whole thing, you couldn't have scripted if you wanted to. Of course, it would be 13 planes. Well, he came back and he opened uh, an exercise gymnasium. A lot of people called it Baker's Gym, or Jim Baker. And to promote himself, he challenged, uh, what was it, Wild Bill Ferguson? Theoretically, the judo champion of the country at that time. He challenged him to a public match, and they got into the ring, and Jim Baker took him out in 17 seconds. That's when he heard about the call to, for an actor to play Tarzan. So he bought himself an Indian motorcycle and jumped on the motorcycle and rode across the country to Hollywood. get the role of Tarzan in Hollywood. His move to California signaled other major changes in Jim's life. Sticking with his fondness for health food, in 1957, Jim, with his new wife Elaine and their three sons, opened two restaurants on Sunset Boulevard called The Old World and The Wear In. And he started seeing other women and he got himself into trouble. Uh, one woman, Jean Ingram, uh, there was this energy with her husband, her husband was going to kill Jim Baker or something like that, and Jim being a judo expert, and he came at him, and he took him down, he killed him. And then there was another energy, somebody said it was due to a pit bull, but it had to do with another woman also, and they ended up in self-defense of her. Or he was defending her. Another man was attacking her and And, killed him too. And uh, there was a whole court case on it. I mean, it was like pretty sensational scandalism for everybody. And um, he got out of jail. He was proven that it was self-defense. But they required him to register his hands. At the legal level. Can you believe that? You ever heard of that? And he left, and you know, all that energy came down of, uh, you know, his hands, and of course, and he went to Samoa, and he ended up uh, curing the chief daughter, who was the princess. They were eating canned food and really junk, junk stuff, you know, Western food, and they got sick. And she almost died, but she got great food poisoning from one of the chef's hands, and he cured her. And so the chief gave him, in return, his daughter, and married him. So here he was, married to the Samoan princess, and he was in paradise on this beautiful beach. And he said he found himself one day 
having this system fan going, it's only I had a problem. And then he knew he had to move on from that energy too, so yes, he left his own senses. But beyond these matrimonial and occupational changes in his life, there were more significant transformations starting to happen as he expanded upon his healthy eating, bodybuilding, and competitive sports with his spirituality. He became a Vedanta monk at this time, which was to be the first of many explorations into Eastern, Middle Eastern, and other more alternative religions. Later on, Jim met Yogi Bhajan, who was the leader of the Healthy, Happy, Holy Day organization and part of the massive influx of Eastern religions, gurus, and spiritual teachers at that time. But in this, in this movement was one of the founding fathers of the whole entire spiritual and meditation movement, which was uh, Yogi Bhajan. He was a very powerful yogi. If you did enough of the yoga and you followed the practices and you did all the meditation, you would have the, the experience of your kundalini rising up your spine and you would become illuminated. Eventually becoming a Sikh himself, Jim was a devoted student and considered Yogi Bhajan to be his spiritual father for the rest of his life. However, while Jim's interest in spirituality were developing and gaining a more fundamental purpose in his life, again his business plans and marital relationships were changing as well. When the wear in and the old world restaurants closed, Jim split with his second wife, Elaine, and filed for divorce, after which he married a French girl named Doris, with whom he started a new restaurant called The Source in the early 1960s. Now, how did the Yehoah have it together on the earth plane? He was the ultimate businessman. He put together a business that supported him and a hundred other people. That was the source restaurant. We were in a womb that covered the earth for us so that we could all evolve. Dora had helped Jim start and run this extremely popular restaurant. They eventually divorced as well. And despite another major relationship change in Jim's life, the source was up and running smoothly, gaining popularity with the young, hip, and avant-garde of Los Angeles. These were the most gorgeous men I'd ever seen in my life. They were like mythical warriors. They had long hair. They were incredibly fit. Pretty wild. Pretty wild, bunch of guys with white robes and long hair and beards and a bunch of unbelievably beautiful women working around this restaurant. Obviously, they were talking about health and community and family and spirit and life and love and expressing that in a way I had not, you know, really seen with any real consistency, you know. And it was the best food I've ever had in my life. It was always emphasized that you eat the purest quality food and raw food, if possible. The best biological protein for man is the uh, sunflower seed. And this is what uh, forms the basis of our protein, along with, uh, with raw cheese. You must have an, an overview or an overthought as to why 
more people are not vegetarians? Is it just lack of information, lack of knowledge on the subject? What, what holds people back, do you think? I think uh, most are victimized by their uh, conditioned tastes. Uh, we don't find it necessary to kill another uh, sentient thing uh, for our food. God sets such a bountiful table that uh, there's no need for it. Um, it takes 21 pounds of, uh, of grain, for example, to, uh, to make one pound of, of beef. Uh, we would have more than enough food to, to feed the world many times over if everyone would become uh, vegetarians. At this time, Jim was also achieving a luminary sort of reputation in Hollywood, as his restaurant was a common hangout for the celebrities and movie stars. The source restaurant was written up in national magazines as being the uh, making more money than any restaurant in the country per square foot. And it was a national food restaurant, a health, health food restaurant, and those things. Uh, the Source was a tremendously successful restaurant. We, uh, we were making $10,000 a day in that restaurant. We had a brand new Rolls Royce. We had uh, eight brand new Volkswagen vans that we purchased. Uh, we made a ton of money. The restaurant was operated in, in a very unique fashion, in an amazing, amazing way to run a business because it was done with what we call life, mind, truth, and love. We were phenomenally dedicated and uh, worked very hard to turn out probably some of the best food that was ever produced in a restaurant. In the midst of his early success and popularity, Jim met and married another woman named Robin who, while she was 20 and Jim was 47, remained a major part in his life for the next six years. More importantly, however, many other people who were similarly attracted to Jim's charisma and the philosophy of the restaurant started coming to the source and staying to work, living in the parking lot in nearby apartments. Father lived upstairs, uh, you know, with his wife, Robin, who is our own. And we lived in different apartments around uh, uh, Hollywood there. And we would just come to work every day and do our meditations and do, do everything that we did. So um, during the first um, couple of weeks, a few people started to come, a few more people started to come, and then after about a month or so of these teachings, there was probably 30 or 40 people that came on a regular basis. Because there was a, tr there was a tremendous spiritual movement going on, and all of these people were still looking for, for a way to um, expand their spiritual consciousness. So we did just that. On Sunday afternoons, we closed, on Sundays, we closed the restaurant, and we moved out all the tables and chairs, and and we began to hold meditation classes. In this way, the source was coming to have a strong community feeling to it, centered on Jim Baker, his beliefs, and his freely offered wisdom. To honor Baker and to allow for a space for him to teach his spiritual knowledge, a temple made of redwood logs was constructed behind the restaurant by Sunflower, one of the first and principal students of Baker, who also migrated from Yogi Bajan's classes. Here, religion, business, and community were all coming together around Jim Baker. The foundations were laid for him to become the significant spiritual teacher and leader that he envisioned. Then, in 1971, Jim traveled to India with Yogi Bhajan and had a revelation. According to the source archives, he was traveling down the Ganges River, wearing a robe and a Sikh headdress. Someone on the boat asked him if he were a Hindu or a Sikh. At that time, he threw his headdress in the river, and he said, 
Neither a Hindu nor a Sikh will I be, for my soul is universal and free. Yeah, all of a sudden he said, and they all followed him around the whole time he was there. I think that's when he began to realize that Yogi Bhajan was not going to accept responsibility for being God or Father. And someone had to. When he returned from that trip to India, he had finally realized that he himself would have to take responsibility for being the father of the age of Aquarius. Although Jim viewed Yogi Bhajan as his spiritual teacher and as God in human form, the guru did not want this sort of role or responsibility. And so while Bajan remained his teacher in many ways, Jim had decided to break away in a sense. The yogi that he had a certain path as an Indian Sikh, as a yogi. And he wasn't into merging. He was into merging the East and the West, but not in the way Jim was seeing it. And he got heard that in the future, the the uh, new spiritual enlightenment, the new spiritual awakening would come out of the West instead of the East. So he began to take responsibility for, for, for himself. And when he came back and the group was forming and they had run the restaurant so effectively and with all of the cosmic things that had happened to him in England or in India, he began to realize that he was that father and to take responsibility for that fatherhood. And therefore... The Source Restaurant and the group around the Source. The Source was the beginning of it all, and and the womb in which it was all basically formed in the tour. For Baker, it was now his obligation to take on this newfound responsibility of leading the world into the new age, to peace and spiritual enlightenment. Now merging east and west, Baker decided not to follow one certain tradition or religion when he returned to Los Angeles. He instead would speak the truth in all ancient religions and teach them with his own spiritual knowledge and style. This is when Jim Baker became the father himself, where he understood himself as the hand of God and was Father Yod. So as he became more and more involved, he began to change his name because you couldn't call him Jim Baker anymore. Jim Baker was dead and gone. He had died and been reborn. And this is, uh, this is what they talk about, how you can die and be reborn again. And so here you have this restaurant, and you have 30 or 40 people walking around in white robes, and you have a guy call, calling himself Father Yoke. I mean, to me, uh, that would sort of spark some imagination in people, you know. And I don't know what's going on here. Chanting his name 
two great cycles in that manner, we complete a circle. We close the energies between the negative and the positive forces. We bring pressure to bear upon the solar plexus, for there is spiritual mind. Man has seven component body parts. His physical body, his pranic body, his etheric body, his subconscious body, his conscious body, his spiritual mind and spirit. Ultimately, man is spirit. Man is out of balance now. That is the problem. Bring the body into balance. Man has but to stand, assume the star exercise, or sit with the two knee points out to the points of the star, extend arms to the side, left hand up, right hand down. Jamaica was now more than just the boss of the restaurant or father figure to its employees. He was Father Yod, and the group is now the Source family, the Brotherhood of the Source. Whereas before most of the employees at the Source lived in vans outside of the restaurant, now the excelling business provided for renting a large house for everyone to live in. While Father Yod and Robin still lived above the restaurant, this new house, the Mother House as it was called, allowed for all the employees and votees to live together in a communal setting where they could eat, sleep, and learn together. And they decided to get the mother house. Um, Which was a channel match. Which was in the Hollywood Hills. A huge, it was part of the first newspaper dynasty, and it was just. We had three stories, stories of the maid's quarters on the third story, elevators, and maybe something a garage with quarters about the garage, that's where the children live, and it just turned out to be fabulous. It was in this way that the focus became more specifically about the religion rather than the business, or rather that the restaurant was really just their spirituality and occupational practice. But beyond the new ordering of the group and its now explicitly communal orientation, the religious teachings and practices of Father Yoda and his followers changed little from before in terms of content and daily rituals. A lot of this was centered not so much on his experiences with Vedantism or Sikhism exactly, but rather more on his theosophical ideas, Freemasonry, Kabbalism, and other mysticism. What he was teaching was... was it wasn't Christianity, it wasn't Judaism, it wasn't Buddhism, but he had kind of, Yahweh had gleaned uh, the teachings from Mohammed and from Buddha and from Jesus and from, um, from the, the Jews and the Israelis, from all the different religious sects, and, uh, and it was presented just as spirit and not as some kind of dogmatic religious uh, thing. I mean, Yehoah used to joke about the fact that we were getting uh, college education in the occult. Here, in addition to the Hebrew alphabet, astrology, and the tarot, of primary importance was the Kabbalah, 
and more specifically, the Tetragrammaton, the supposedly true, sacred, and ineffable name of God. Here, YHVH, pronounced yod he vau or Yahuwah, by Father Yod, was the basis for most of the teachings, the group's morning meditations, and their way of life. And so while the pronunciation of this name was supposedly kept a secret in the past, Yod was now giving this knowledge and its meaning freely. yod he is the ancient and sacred name of Yehoah hidden. The real name is Yahuwaho. What is that? Fire, water, air, and earth. What is the highest manifestation of fire, water, air, and earth on this planet? The family. The Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and the Daughter, of course. Fire, water, air, and earth. That name has been hidden so well that nobody knew it for thousands of years except for one person in each temple. And that person was only allowed to speak that name once a year. And that person was only allowed to speak it in the inner sanctum by himself, and he had played a gong while he was speaking it to make sure that nobody else could see it, could hear it. All of this was written down in Father Yod's book, Liberation, and sold at the restaurant. It is in this book that Father Yod laid out his Ten Commandments for the Age of Aquarius, which were, Obey and live by the teachings of your earthly spiritual father. Love your earthly spiritual father more than yourself. Harm not one of your body parts through either neglect, food, drink, or knife. Allow each vibration to complete its own cycle without interference. Possess nothing that you do not need and share all that you have. The man and his woman are one. Let nothing separate them. Squander not thy creative force in lust. But come together only when the three vibrations of the physical, the mental, and the emotional are in harmony with spiritual love. Each morning, join your vibration with the ascending current of universal life energy using the keys that your earthly spiritual father has taught you. Do every act energetically, intelligently, truthfully, and lovingly. When these commandments are mastered, leave the house of your earthly spiritual father and do the work of your heavenly father. A constantly shifting dynamic, communal life under Father Yod and his commandments was definitely interesting and is perhaps what might have earned the group the term of cult by mainstream America. 
we were introduced to a different type of a world. We, were, we lived in our own world for many years in the, in the source. We weren't in contact with the outside world as far as TV and news and all of this. We had our own little world. The women of the family were not allowed to interact with anyone outside of the family because we were pure consciousness and we weren't allowed to be contaminated by men from out in the outside world. So there was really not a lot of interaction. We uh, uh, pulled ourselves you know, totally away from the Maya as much as possible, you know, so that we could just meditate, find ourselves. That's what we called it, the Maya. And the family was real out there with the Maya, the illusion that people thought was real. It makes no difference who you are and how hard you try. If you were not there, there's no way that anyone can ever explain that experience. There's no, one, no way that anyone can ever convey that experience. You lived among over a hundred people who were striving together to attain God consciousness. We created an insular little community where we had those values, we practiced those values as if we were living in a golden age, in a future age, in a future time. I think there was a mad event, a lot of flaws in the sense that um, they tried separating themselves completely from the world instead of integrating it, you know, putting themselves on a pedestal, so to say, and like saying, like I remember when I was a kid, I'd hear people say Pisceans and, and uh, uh, Aquarians. That's how they, and I was like, what do you, it didn't connect with me then, and it still doesn't connect with me now. It's like, we're all here on the same planet, we're all going through the same things. So if you want to separate yourself and call yourself an Aquarian and somebody else a Piscean because of the way they're living, then you're going to have to understand at some point in your process what they're experiencing too. Most of the young people in the Source family thought I was a CIA plant or an FBI spy. We saw ourselves as the ones with the consciousness, and we saw everybody else as being unconscious. It was a real spiritual snobbery, actually. And if they came to the family and they saw Yahweh, they were obviously conscious. And if they came to the family and they didn't see Yahweh, obviously they were unconscious. When you were around, Father, if you had any uh, grandiose notions, you know, they sort of thrived in that environment. And uh, a lot of guys uh, had bouts of egomania, you know. Because if God's your father, what makes that you? What, who are you? As with most communal settings, there were these certain rules and practices laid out to organize and maintain the group. When a person joined, they were to come in with no personal possessions or money. If they did come with these things, all was to be given away to share with the group. Usually we had to be chanting for one month uh, every morning at 3.30. From 3.30 to 4.30 we had to chant for an hour. We had to be vegetarian. And then after one month we would come back and if we pass this test we would be accepted. Give us your word that anything you learn in this situation you will not disclose to anyone without our approval upon penalty of never being able to forgive yourself. You know, nobody ever forced anybody to do anything except we all were each other's higher consciousness 
or brother's keeper or um, you know it was like you had 140 pairs of eyes on you all the time so you had to keep yourself always uh, on your toes a lot of them were disowning their their uh, biological family and I know that that might have been okay for their process but I think it also created some uh, confusion and I wish they had to go back later and heal you know I didn't really give up my earthly family my what we what we call flesh family and the source family uh, but I wanted them to be with me I felt my sound felt I found the answer to no more cancer no more no more sadness I found the answer the answer to life So uh, needless to say, when you came in and you joined the, uh, the Brotherhood of the Source at that point, uh, you, you, you were, your name was taken away from you and you were given a number because that was part of, now you had died and become born again and you were given a new name and a number and your number was written in the book. In addition to name changes, there were also revolutionary modifications of sex roles and broader ma- male-female relationships. And then, you know, it started, well, Father Yod, he took another woman. And that was pretty controversial, but of course we didn't think anything of it. It was time, Father said, to do relationships in a different way. Most obvious in the social modification was Father Yod's acquiring wives, Pisces, Peralda, Harvest, a home, Prism, Tantaleo, Astral, Makushla, Aquariana, Galaxy, Venus, Lovely, Patia, and Heaven. This was possible because of Yod's principle called the Law of Correspondence. As Isis wrote and explained it, the most revolutionary concept that he introduced into the family was liberating all women. He raised women up as God's first creation and allowed each woman to do as she pleased, choosing her work, choosing her mate, freely expressing her soul as the creative force of this universe. This freedom resulted in many women choosing him. He did call us his spiritual wives. He did say we were his wives. Legally, we weren't. Spiritually, we were. As far as he was concerned, we were. And by that point, there was a, he had formed a council of women, 13 women, so there were like the 13 of us now. Three had his children, Aquariana had his son, Yod, Prism had his daughter, Buttercup, and Robin had his daughter, Toph. But, yeah, he had 13 women completely enthralled and just, you know, uh, with no overt signs of jealousy or competition or anything. I mean, that's an enormous feat. They were his women and they were supposed to be mothers of his sons. And we were into this whole experiment of dynamic in relationships. Most of the young women who were attracted to the family were irresistibly attracted to father and wanted to be his woman. Almost all, he attempted to turn back to serve his sons. He would say, if you love me, serve my sons. Usually to no avail, though. It was the freedom of the 
women to choose the godman they wanted to be with in a closed group with a relatively fixed number of choices. Although new sons and daughters did constantly flow in as some flowed out, that resulted in some sons and father being surrounded by clusters of women and other sons being left as singletons. It was the women themselves who created the unions within the family, and it was their free choice that formed polygamous groupings. Father taught that a godman should be passive in such matters, not signaling preference or pursuing any particular woman. He taught that his sons should be one-pointed into God, and that any woman who came to him should be graciously accepted as a gift from God without judgment. So the sons were like rocks in the lake, and the women swam around them from rock to rock as they chose. Father also taught that a woman would always desert her current mate for a higher affinity. Thus a man could not hold on to a woman and must allow her to come and go as the fluctuating pulse of the creative force of God. Thus Father allowed the women to create the family in its many metamorphoses. He had an ideal, he formulated an ideal reality about how women and men should, would get along harmoniously and then that's what he taught, that's what he imposed, and he could actually pull it off. Because uh, before his death, he had 13 women that were totally devoted to him. But, you know, the women... Um, uh, I'm glad I wasn't a woman. That's all I can say. You had to be taken care of by one of the men in the family. It wasn't like you could be just, you know your own being. You had to be a satellite around because that was part of the structure of the family. You know, the man and his woman are one and the man takes care of the woman and that sort of thing. A man could have a direct relationship with God and women had a direct re- had a relationship with men. Right? And uh, at the same time uh, at a point in the family he acknowledged women as God. Right? Woman is God. Right? But uh, because masculinity is the active principle and femininity is the, you know, um, and he was a very masculine man, his ideal of a relationship was that he was in charge. You know, his job was to relate to God, and a woman's job in his life was to support him. Now, the sex that he had was, uh, according to uh, Western sexual magic, a la the Order of the Golden Dawn and the Templars and things like that, where um, there was a tremendous amount of uh, spiritual discipline incorporated into a sexual act, uh, uh, ejaculation only occurred for man like once a month or, you know, or if he was going to um, create a child. And the rest of the time, uh, um, it was a meditation. It was a meditation.
dynamic freedoms of the group developed, so did the Catanian itself. Moving from the mother house to another mansion in the Hollywood Hills called the Father House. Business was doing very well, and this economic comfort allowed for the experimentation, extravagance, and expansion of the Source family. And they wanted to uh, challenge that the family was going to move into it, so we had to find another house for the family. And Jody Foster's dad was a real estate agent, and Lucius Foster, that's his name, and he worked with us and found us the father's house. And that's the people, one of the beehives, where they were
there was this huge picture window with L.A. spread out to the horizon and this big gong and a few candles and this guy. And so here he was with artifacts from Egypt. And here were gathered in front of him about 90 to 100 beautiful young men and women. And for hours, literally speaking, hours, we would listen to the wisdom. Yeho would do the gong. We had a beautiful gong. And we'd all be sitting together on our sheepskins or whatever and just listening to Yehoah, breathing, chanting, doing all these wonderful things. And every day was different. Every day new wisdom would come down. He would channel. He, we didn't know that word at that time, so we would say the wisdom was coming down. But basically, he was opening up to the Akashic Records. He was opening up to all of the spiritual teachings of all times and bringing them down into that room and laying down things. And I always, I would always think that he would say things that were so heavy that you would just sit there and go, how in the world could he possibly have thought of something so incredible? I mean, it was just. Off the map. You know, it was off the map. It was incredible. To me, I lived with God. I literally could see colors in the, in the atmosphere. I could literally feel the vibration in the atmosphere. And I swear to God, I saw lightning bolts coming out of his ears. I saw, it was like lightning bolts coming out of his ears. And I went, ah, I'm never leaving this man, ever. Every morning after this experience, the group chanted, Yehovah, Yehovah, Ho. I still remember the chant. Pretty much we chanted for, to dissolve the personalities and the ego. We never spoke. Nobody said one word. Actually, it was against the law of the source to speak in the temple or when people chant or after you chant. It was this is this is we we kept this this silence so that we constantly just stay focused on the inner versus the outer. It's always a uh, uh, very deep, intimate, ecstatic experience in the mornings. And the vibration was so powerful that it no one can describe it. There's no way it can be described unless you were there. And for each person, it was different, of course, when they were there. But I would hesitate to, I would doubt that there's ever been a, a group that ever became closer at any point in vibration in one moment than the group of people who were together in those rooms, in that room at that time. So basically, we all gave it up to you, how if you became the focal point. Whether it's group meditations or group whatever. There's always more power in numbers. Now, how you use that power and how you direct that power is up to the group. And depending on the wisdom that, that each group has. So when he gathered the family together, he's gathering agreement that creates a much stronger force. When you meditate as a group, you can penetrate. It's where that truth penetrates you through your delusion of yourself. And by, as soon as the dawn uh, starts to rise and the first ray of light would come in, we would uh, get off the meditation trance and we start coming back into our bodies. Right after that, 
we would start going to watch the sunrise. It all depends where we were, because as we watch the first rays of the sunrise, uh, the, the that specific color of the sun contained all the elements that our bodies were missing. And by just squinting our eyes, standing out there and absorbing those wonderful uh, light beams from the sun, we were miraculously balanced. We always felt completely rejuvenated. I myself would feel like I had just went into a, a magnificent uh, and lay down because we just loved one another and we would just watch uh, you know, we'll just pick the movie out it wasn't big Hollywood could be an old movie but that's what we would do together for fun we would go to the beach Venice Beach or Santa Monica Beach and go for a hike in the park we would have time for massages and we and swimming in the pool and doing our exercises with Yehovah or hanging. There was like leisure. And all the hippies didn't like us because we made them look bad because here we were all clean and we did archery. So what happened to all the peace-loving, you know? We were, uh, we were a fr- an affront to uh, a lot of social values both conservative and liberal social values. We, we didn't fit in any box. Our whole, his whole strategy of us being financially successful and flaunting our money was protective coloration. You know, it was protective coloration uh, because that's one thing. Success and glyphs was one thing that uh, the people of Beverly Hills and Hollywood would respect and that would provide then that respect would provide us safety to pursue our spiritual exploration. You know, I wasn't afraid of money. Most people who are trying to get into consciousness think money is an evil thing. Money, Yahweh said money is the best tool on the planet. It is a tool with which you can do anything. In Icy's pudding, we had a fleet of red and white VW vans and a white Rolls Royce called Ultimate. And then we had the vans have the spare tire on the front, so you have the tire covers all painted in the uh, medallions from the from the dollar bill. The one with the eagle with the thirteen arrows, and the other one with the the pyramid with the eye on top. So you see these three-door caravans. It was quite impressive to see the rolls and the red Mercedes and these <laughs> white. I was uh, 
father's personal chauffeur. He bought me one of these really outrageous suits, and, and we played the whole game to the to the T. We rented the Rolls Royce, and we all got really nice clothes, and somebody dressed up like a chauffeur, and we get driven, you know, and drive us to Beverly Hills, and we go to Chasen's, where the governor, who was Ron Reagan at the time, was having Sunday brunch, and would bribe the uh, Mater D to sit us next to Ronald Reagan, and the women would walk in, and uh, they they looked like fairies because they wore uh, nightgowns with camisole. They can't, you know, they wore lacy, diaphanous dresses, bare feet, and hair down to their ass, and they were all under 30. So three of them would walk in with three guys dressed in German velvet robes with big, heavy belts and jewelry and, you know, sandals and long hair and beards, you know, and would sit down, you know, and, and have breakfast at Chasen's just to turn heads. He was intentionally provocative, and he wanted us to be seen. And some of it was more successful than others. So when, you know, somebody referred to it, it was a dog and pony show, well, yeah, he trotted us out intentionally, and uh, it was to get people's attention. It was to get them asked questions. He loved to challenge rigid ideas, especially about religion, especially about gender, about materiality, spirituality. He just loved to, uh, you know, take on dogma and limitation and just shake it up. So you never know. You never knew, you know, uh, how you what you were going to be invited to take on, you know, as. Um, being a provocateur, you know, to to values, you know, to the values and, and fixed ideas of social consciousness, to be an affront, you know, to be a contrarian, to, to challenge social consciousness. Actually, the way I was in this world was not new at all. I mean, it seemed completely outlandish and totally spontaneous and wild and everything, but in a sense, there's a very ancient lineage tradition, the tantric masters of, of you know, eons ago, five, six thousand years ago, the tantric con- tradition is all about that crazy wisdom, you know, that idea of blowing people's minds and blowing things apart and concepts and ideals that we all get rigid and crystallized around and think it has to be a certain way. That was the best thing that's ever happened, just keep blowing it apart and blowing it apart because there is going to come a time, and we're seeing it now, where we needed to be prepared to be able to be with all of this confusion that's happening on the planet and stay in our center and know really um, who we are and what we're about. And we got that by tearing apart everything we thought we were and thought we knew. We would get into these explorations of spirit of of spiritual inquiry through any available history, and uh, and we we start kind of like living it, you know. So. Um, one funny example was that if you look at uh, Egyptian reliefs, uh, the women wear dresses that come up to here and their breasts are bare. So the women started walking around, you know, bare-breasted, you know, and a lot of these women hadn't had children yet or anything, and they had very fine, you know, breasts. 
and uh, but they'd wear they'd wear these you know, and they did that for a few days, and we were all Egyptian, just because they were being Egyptian. They were analogically becoming Egyptian. We just became it, and then then we get into something else. We get into the Templars, and uh, we get into the Rosicrucians, or we'd start studying the um, the Masons, the Freemasons, or uh, the Sufis, or and very early we were doing the um, we were doing Kundalini yoga, and uh, uh. we went through a lot at that time, a lot of um, early incarnations started coming down. Like he took us through American Indians, he started wearing leather, and got into the Indian stuff, and then we got into something else, and it became a scene, Camelot, you name it, it's just kind of went. So we went from white Essene robes to robes like American flags and stuff like that. We were walking around Hollywood in these, you know, with 13 stars on your chest, you know, red, white, and blue. And, you know, I mean, you know, and we did that for a couple months, then we did something else. Because basically we're into walking our talk, living our dreams. And the idea was, you know, you don't just practice at it. You don't just play at it. You live it. And it, it's always about that, going, you know, how, how do you um, trace back and uncover, you know, our true essence. So to do everything as if we are the first person, the first man, the first woman. So we don't cut our hair. If you're the first woman, why would you cut your hair? Why would you have a watch? Why would you? You wouldn't. You wouldn't know none of these things. It would be just like like the way the animals live, just very natural. Just you watch the trees, you look at the book of life, and you live from it. Then society and religion and social custom and tradition and ethnicity and economic uh, shouldn't be any constraints, you know, should pose no constraints on what a person uh, is allowed to explore and turn into wisdom for themselves. So it's, you know, this thing about freedom, he was big into, you know, personal freedom and that this was the country that most, in its ideal, uh, you know, most embodied that, and it was um, it was deliberately constructed. So, what was the kind of mind that created it? What became intriguing to him was um, a lot of Manly C. Hall's work on the uh, the Masonic uh, influences in the foundation of the United States and how. Oh, they put all the Masonic gobbledygook on the money and uh, stuff, you know. And so who architected the dream of America? Who were these people? Were they Christians? No. Well, were they uh, esoteric uh, students of the esoteric? Yeah. Were, uh, is that basically pagan? Yes. Um does it have to do with uh, Wicca and uh, 
natural energies and consciousness and energy and reality. Yeah, because everything to do with that. And so, you know, who were these people? They were the, you know, and so he got into a whole um, exploration of um, the unacknowledged uh, occult spiritual uh, esoteric founding of America. You know, who he tried to profile these people. Who were they? What did they believe? They were all uh, 33 degree Mason. You know, every one of Washington's generals was a Mason of high degree. So, um, so what did they believe? And what were they up to? And why were they willing to put, you know, their lives, their destiny, their sacred honor on the line, you know, to create a country? away from uh, the control of the mother country. You know, why did they do it? So, uh, and then, you know, what idealisms are guaranteed, you know, by our Constitution and by our Bill of Rights? And how does that distinguish America? What, you know, from other places? And um, what does that guarantee us? And I know that Yahweh was trying to show us in a very um, graphic way you know, in a big, dramatic way, um, some of those principles. And liberation was certainly a word he understood and used and was seeking his own liberation. And we all thought that that was something, you know, worthy to emulate or to try at least to um, achieve within ourselves in any small way that we could. He told us that we were in the source, anticipating a time uh, of a future age when there would no longer be any religion, and there would no longer be any middleman between man and God. A person would be born with the understanding that they were God, and the only teacher that they would ever need would be their own father and mother. All right? No more religion. We realized that we couldn't live in the golden age, but we took the concept that we imagined a golden age would be like, and we adapted them to our own time and place, which was the 1970s in West Hollywood, California. And we did it in the uh, under the harsh scrutiny of the most bourgeois social consciousness that exists on this planet, which is the entertainment and music industry, you know, the whole of the entertainment the music industry, which is really the the epicenter, the Rome of mind control. Is it not? It was in this way that the band and musicians came about as an addition to the restaurant. First it was Father Yeo in the spirit of 76, then other incarnations of basically the same musicians under different names, such as Yehoah 13, the Sabbath Sons of Yehoah, and Firewater Air. All these groups, except Fire, Water, Air, were led by Father Yod and Yehoah himself. The songs were all spontaneous and improvisational. The lyrics were channeled from unseen places by Yod. All this was made possible by converting the garage at the new father house into a recording studio and band room. And then they turned the garage into a band room. Um, Octavius came into the family as a, a drummer. And Father ran. I have a drummer. If I have a drummer, then I must have a guitar player, a bass player, and I have singers, and 
I have a band. We have a band. We're going to do music. We had a recording studio built into our house, and we would uh, take that recording studio with us wherever we went. And after morning meditation, the musicians would gather, and we would just start to lay it down. He said the music was going to be, that the music was way before its time, and that his message would come out through the music. And he said that, you know, it, it would carry a frequency that would be like spiritual seeds that would transcend time. A lot of the model that he operated on was very gender-based. You know, it was like, he said, well, the music, you know, for somebody to write a song, have it be very melodic, and then they practice at the press, and they overdub, and they, you know, and he said, that's very, that's feminine music. That belongs to the old age. I'm going to express masculine music, and it would be the antithesis, the polar opposite, of what he called feminine music. That meant it was unrehearsed. Uh, that it was delivered spontaneously. Uh, that it was delivered with voice inflection, with no um, no rehearsal, no redo. He just focused. He meditated in the morning. He got an idea that he wanted to deliver. Sometimes he had notes and he'd go into the band room and he'd belt it out and the musicians just had to keep up with it. <laughs> you know? I mean, you can explain it like being in the band room was uh, higher than any drug you know, you could ever take. You know, that, that energy that we, we produced in there just, you know, made us soar. You know, you, you could actually feel like you had wings on and you were flying. You know, we just wanted to completely clean ourselves out and just be a, a, a channel of the music, you know, and let that come through. Uh, I remember Jen, uh, uh, he was the guitar player, the predominant guitar player, and, he, and Jen, he was named Jen because he's full of fire. This guy is so fiery you can't control him. And uh, sometimes he, he would just play a big chord and his guitar would all be out of tune, so we all just try and we'd play for five minutes just trying to get into tune and I and, and it would come out to be some of the greatest stuff you ever heard, man. All out of tune and notes everywhere but all in harmony. You know, and finally we would all lock it in and by that time it was into a beat, it was into a groove and uh and then it would just we would just go with it. Well it's said that they recorded a total of sixty five albums in the five or so years that they were together. Only nine were released by the Source family in very small pressings sold in the section of the restaurant called Higher Key Records. But nobody was really buying them. You know, we couldn't really get them out there. We thought if we got a major record deal that they would do a lot of promotion and get it out there more. And we felt that the music would be the vehicle that we could, number one, be able to sustain ourselves with, and number two, well, actually, that, that's really number two. But it's, they're sort of in tandem. Number two, being able to sustain ourselves. But number one, to be able to get the word out. That people would hear the music and hear the wisdom and become enlightened. These are teachings of his worldview. Uh, it was a frequency. It was a, it was a message that would cut through time 
and that it would alter the future. It would not only alter the future, but it would find listeners because the man is authentic. The man is absolutely genuine, you know, and he's got something to say. The man was a natural adept, and uh, he liked to study and apply hermetic principles of frequency, vibration, um, rhythm, gender, all of those uh, very abstract hermetic concepts. The soul exists outside of time, and he was very present as as an entity or an energy that transcended his time, that existed, he existed in the past. This is something interesting uh, about the Source family. It was as if we were existing in the past and the future simultaneously. Everywhere it can go, and then we keep it going, and we don't rehearse it, so that makes us always current to the energy. So we go without restriction, without the pain, without the remorse, without the regret that infects our society today. A man has ratted on man, himself, into ripping himself off. Can you imagine such a ridiculous situation? So, I for one and my sons for another are through with it. We don't burn anybody. <clears throat> and what's more, we're not going to let anybody burn us, babies. <laughs> Let's understand each other. I think it was December 23rd of 1974. One of his sons came back from Arizona or somewhere. He was kind of a friend son, if I remember. Somebody wasn't around very often. And he said, you know, so what are you doing? And he said, well, I brought you a gift. He said, what is that? He said, I brought you peyote. So Yehoah did peyote for our class. It became a very powerful, very heavy energy. And he actually went into the dark darker spaces, uh, not, not that he was being negative to us, but that he was recognizing the negative forces of the universe, and the class was finally over. It was a much more darker, heavier energy than we would usually experience in class, and we did chant and breathe and do our normal things, but after that class, I went out, um, um, I had to work at the stores that day, and then I had an appointment with the licorice pizza manager to try, which was a record chain at that time to try to sell our records. And I went out on that appointment and I made some record deliveries and I came back. And when I got back, Yehovah was moving to Hawaii. I knew it already happened. 
day. We had class, and he was in a plane and gone the next day. You know, we left California because we were seeking a, a community in which we can we could live free and and uh, and just be ourselves and, and try and uh, uh, be an example of a, a group of of people that could live together and, and, and function in the world and and uh, uh, live peacefully and lovingly together. Well, we are. We knew that we needed to. Uh, we need to have a place that we could farm, that we could live a simple life, that we could live a good life. Uh, we had a conscious decision to make. Were we going to um, become corporate-level businessmen and expand the source restaurant and open up ten more of them and become businessmen in the world? We didn't really want to do that. We decided that the best thing that we really, everybody in our hearts wanted to do was go somewhere, get a great big piece of land, and farm it and build geodesic domes and live in them. And the plan was to create the dome community, be this perfect example, have all the people there, their children and their children's children, and then go on from there, and hopefully it would perpetuate across the nation and into the world. And we, we sent out scouts, and we looked all over. We went to South America. We went uh, to Europe. We went everywhere looking for the first a perfect piece of land. We decided in the end that Hawaii was the best place. The climate is wonderful. You can drop a seed on the ground and, and in a year you can eat the fruit off the tree from it. You don't have to do anything. Uh, it, it just, it's extraordinary there. And of course we were going to be living there and surviving the Holocaust that was going to happen to the rest of the world because we were constantly talking about the fact that you know, these pyramid predictions that um, and Nostradamus predictions and whatever. Hawaii is out in the middle of the ocean, so if there was going to be some cataclysmic occurrence, then all, uh, you know, California was going to drop into the ocean and all the water would go, you know, Hawaii is like the highest mountaintop measured from the bottom of the ocean floor, so the water would recede and go California, cover California, but we would be okay because now we would be on this big landmass. Unfortunately, attempting to realize the total dream of utopia became the fall of Father Yod and the dissolution of the Source family. Outside of Los Angeles, without the economic backing of the Source and without the support of the hip New Age culture, Yod and the family were continually having a hard time of it in Hawaii, meeting opposition to their way of life. There are a few problems in Hawaii. Local people are a little bit surprised when... A hundred people moved in with the men with long hair and robes and the women dressing the way we did. Well, we weren't very chilly. A lot of locals didn't really have a whole lot of um, respect for uh, Yehoah and or any of the people in the family because they were so counterculture at that time. Even though this definitely is our time, um, Hawaii is very disremoved from the mainland. Well, the people on the island did not like the idea that we were there. This was right around the time of Charles Manson, uh, and the word family was a, was a very scary word in anybody's mind. And we called ourselves the Source family. They thought we were uh, brothers with the Manson family, and uh, they did not take kindly to us at all. Father had an open forum. He invited everybody to come to find out who we were, what we were about, asking anything if they wanted. Hardly anybody showed up. Hardly anybody asked the question. Yeah. And 
We can't blame him when you see the picture of him under the big tree with about 50 people are right behind him. It wasn't like we made it easy for people to jump through our mirror at that time. So here we have this person showing up, and he's walking through the main parts of town, and he's doing some very obvious uh, out front uh, advertising of who he was, and, and uh, you know, kind of strange to have somebody who um, is actually a bigamist and advertising it. So it became very, uh, very uh, precarious ground that we were on. Here we had uh, 100 and something people over there and Volkswagen vans, and we were all set up in this thing, and they wanted us out of there. They began to boycott us in the, in the markets. They wouldn't sell us food. And at one point, I was walking along the road next to the ocean, and a local pulled a gun on me and said, get the hell out of here. We don't want you. What worked in L.A. did not work in Hawaii. And uh, um, the provocative aspect of his style only bred violence on the part of the locals, reaction, hostility, uh, gunfire. I'll never forget the night that I woke up to what sounded like machine gun fire. There was this, uh, somebody thrown a string of Chinese firecrackers, which is like, you know, hundreds of firecrackers on a string, onto the roof of the children's house. And we didn't know what was going on. And it scared the living daylights out of us. So uh, we realized that we were in some danger on that island when they began to shoot out our lights and all kinds of stuff. So we went, uh, we decided we better um, just go ahead and leave. We were not ever going to be accepted on that island. So um, we went down and said, if you want us out of here so bad, you pay for it. And they paid for it. They got us, they shipped us all out, everything we had. All of us, they, they paid for everything. It was in this phase that the group was especially restless, moving back to the mainland in San Francisco. This, however, was only temporary as most of the group then took off for India and the world tour in order to try and find a new home for everyone. All were becoming somewhat frustrated with not having their birth trip financially in place and it was a constant thought with father of the responsibility of this large group and undertaking. Jim had always been one that would and could master any situation. It soon became too much with the, the trunk loads of stuff the women were lugging around and too many people, so Yod sent everyone back except him, Makushala, and Damien. They ended up in Egypt on Easter Sunday at the pyramids. When they eventually made it back to San Francisco, there were about 100 people left at that time, all living out of moving vans, then briefly in a church in Mill Valley. Yeah, I took, I'm serious, 40 days and 40 nights. We traveled like this in a moving van, just wondering where we were going to stay the next night. Then we started, decided, we decided that, we all decided we were going to buy a mansion in San Francisco because that would be big enough for us. When they came across a place for rent in downtown San Francisco called the Atherton Mansion, they knew that they had to get it. It was owned by an eccentric old woman who had about 39 cats that lived and died in the house. They bought it and actually saved it from the wrecking ball, so that I see. She also points out that it was a haunted house. 
It was here that uh, Father Yod finalized his 14 women and the council. Times were tough, but they still had hope of making utopia work if they could just find the right place. Again, it was decided that they needed to try to get to Hawaii. However, before leaving San Francisco, each family member was supposed to have a certain dollar amount to contribute to the general fund or have a way of supporting themselves with some left to put into the hole. This wasn't necessarily a good sign, though. And when they did get back to Hawaii, there were just more acceptance problems waiting for them. We just couldn't find the perfect piece of land, and we couldn't find the place we were supposed to be, and um, it was, things were getting more and more difficult. Never got to the point where we actually had uh, our own big piece of land in, in which we were going to build a community. Over a period of time, the money funneled down. <coughs> and because the money funneled down, and it took a lot of money to fly these people back and forth, there became less and less money. And there were times when we really were poor. People weren't, they weren't um, getting jobs to bring money in. There wasn't enough money to take care of everybody. And the movie was just not happening. It was just becoming too much to keep up. And one day he said, um, okay, this is what's going to happen. He said the sons are going to cut their hair and they're going to put on suits for appropriate clothing and they're going to go out and they're going to work. And we're all going, oh, no, you know, you can't do that. They can't cut their hair. And he goes, and I'm going to cut my hair, and I'm going to put on a suit, and I'm going to go out and work. I'm going to get a job because it's just like the family was not being taken care of. It was at the time when Father Yod sent out the command that anyone who wanted to be considered part of the family had to be in Hilo by August 1st, 1975. He had decided that we were a closed family, that he was no longer wanted people to come and go at random, that the people who came and then left and then came back and then left, that was over. We were a family and we were a sealed family. So he decided to seal the family and he put out a lot of energy communicating with people all over the world to say on August 30th, August 30th, you will be in this house or you will not be in this family. No, no, it was July, August 1st, that's what it was. And then on July 29th, he went to a with a bunch of the women. But he wasn't even in the house. And it got to where he said became extremely restless. He started smoking, started just doing whatever anybody brought him. He was just like, he was like a caged animal, you know, started getting very frustrated. And in the end, I think became very frustrated with that level of being that, you know, he had gone as far as he could go in that particular time space. Father said he didn't want to end up being idolized, so he didn't want a record. He didn't want us taking, he didn't want us taking pictures. He said, I'm going to be leaving the body soon, and when I do, I'm doing it for you. And we'd say, no, 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 you know, no, what do you mean? I'm doing it for you because as long as I stick around, they're going to be focusing on me. If I leave the body, you'll be focusing on you and manifesting God consciousness wherever you go. Somehow, all the events of the preceding days, in retrospect, made it clear that Yehoah was going to challenge life 
fate and destiny. The Source family found many odd things about that day, in fact. The mother, Angel Makushala, had on a black dress, and she rarely wore black. And father said to her, Makushala, you are very appropriately dressed this morning. Then halfway through that day's group meditations, Father Yod stood up and suddenly said that he was going hang gliding immediately. Jupiter was out putting a kite on the truck, and we were all just in shock. We had no idea what was going on. But we know that when Father got up to leave, and Yehoah moved, he moved at lightning speed, or you were left behind. He waited for nobody. You know, so we were all scrambling. The mothers were scrambling to grab diapers for the babies, and and you know we had no concept of what going up on this mountain to go hang gliding was all about. But we knew that everybody wanted to be there. And he kept saying, "It's okay. Everybody doesn't have to go. I'm coming back." But yeah, right. As he and the family pulled out of the driveway in their Mercedes Benz, a woman coming for the meditations that morning wanted to know where everyone was going. To this, Father Yod said. Moratoria te salutemus, or we who are about to die salute you, an old Roman gladiator's pledge. And he just stuck his head out the window and said that to her and said, drive on. And, you know, we just drove on and left her on the side of the road going, what is going on? And then when they got to the cliffs, there was a fence and a locked gate. It was still very early in the morning as the sun was just starting to come up and father wanted to break in. The bottom gate was locked with 12, 12 locks, and there was a broken lock on the ground, which made 13 locks, and one was broken on the ground. And so we all said, well, it's locked. That means, you know, we can't go. We can't go. And Father said, no, if I have to walk up, he said, I will walk up with the kite on my back. We're all thinking, like, you know, with the cross on your back, you're going to walk up the hill. You know, all of a sudden, we're just, you know, it's flashing. And, and um, he said, Mercury was there, and he said, son, pick up a rock and break all those chains if you have to, but you get me in that gate. And just at that time, a hang glider drove up, the black knight. And he drives up, and he says, I'll let you in, and he unlocks it. Mercury set up father's kite, and the wind was just whipping. It was just howling. If you see the pictures, our hair is blowing, our robes are blowing. And you look over, and there's the nursing mothers with his babies on the side just looking at him with the children, and all of us are going, wow, you know, this is getting serious. This is intense, and we didn't know what to do. And we saw that he was going off a Mercury's kite, which was too small for him. You know, Mercury was not his weight, his height. It wasn't the proper kite. He never had any lessons. He never got off. He's in his robe. He takes his shoes off, and he gets into this hand glider, and the wind is whipping. And at this point, it's like, no, you know, don't, you cannot go. And Makusha's saying, Kitty, please don't go. And and Yehoah said, I'll be all right. Jesus is in the breath. He's in the air. It will take care of me. I will be fine. But this kind of holy breath and wind stopped just as Jim stepped off at the 1,300-foot cliff. This made his kite go straight down. He plunged straight down the cliff.
Shores family made it down to the shoreline, the authorities and a large group of people were already there. The white road man crumpled on the beach. And he, he was unconscious because as we drove up to him, he was smiling, but he was not conscious. And he came out of it. The women got out of the car and gathered around him. He looked up and he said, don't block the sun. Part, not the sun too, don't block. And he said, where's that angel that let me down? Where's that angel? And we just kept saying, oh, yeah, hold on. you know, we've got to, we've got to pick you up and we've got to leave. You know, they're, they're going to take you. And are you okay? And he said, my back might be broken. But he said, I can get up. He said, just put me in the car and get me out of here. And after convincing everyone that he was all right, the family brought Yehoah back to Mercury's house, and a naturopathic doctor was called. Stanley Burroughs, uh, the naturopath, uh, uh, came over uh, that I saw uh, after I had gotten there and shined his lights on, uh, on Father's feet. He shined a green light on Father's feet and uh, did some kind of... evaluation or something and uh, uh, I talked to him after when, on a, when he was about to leave and his words to me were this man does not have to die okay well we didn't know nobody guessed especially the, his women would never dream that he could die from I mean you know he was fine he was fine it's important to also mention that uh, at least two, if not three, healthcare professionals were called and actually came to the house during this period, including two visits by an ambulance. So it wasn't like anybody was ignoring the situation. And they, they all said, oh, you'll be fine. There's nothing wrong. You know, you're in pain. You got hurt. But you'll be fine. There was one point where Father said to Makusha, do you think I should go to the hospital? And Makushla said, you can do what you want, Kitty, she called him Kitty, she said, you can do what you want, Kitty. She said, but if you go going against your teaching. So it was like, wow, yeah, you know, it would be. When I got there, I was really pissed at Mercury. I think at that time, like a Back at that time, like a dozen guys had died on that ridge. And, and I went inside the house, and Father's laid out on the floor. And one of the women said, Oh, yo, Jupiter's here. He just kind of nodded. Didn't open his eyes. Didn't say anything. And everybody was very quiet. She went to a, a birth process there. It was, he would, it was like a birth. He would have spaces where he would be fine, and then the pain would start again. And he, he would tell us, he says, like, I can feel it going up my chakras that you have that go up your body. And actually, when a person dies, the Kundalini is released, the fire. And it does go all the way up, but usually it's when you, after you, after you die. The kids did it before you died, and you could feel it. He said it was like a hymen 
that broke through each hymen of the chakra as it went up. And it took him nine hours. And then he just all of a sudden he looked down and he was looking up into the fish's eyes. He was laying on her lap. And he, he was gone. And now he, he left. And uh, we just watched him as he uh, he just laid there and uh, just kind of left the body. I'd say faded out, but you know, it doesn't. I remember he was drooling uh, at the end. I think I saw him drooling. It was kind of anticlimactic. Everyone was totally quiet and respectful. Lots of flowers, lots of incense. The women washed his body, and when they were doing that, and I was present, uh, I noticed around his was like a a red donut, maybe a half inch wide, maybe wider, right around his. I just made me think that, uh, you know, I stepped off the cliff where that was the kundalini shot to uh, set off his kundalini. And uh, when it goes off like that with that with the kind of power that that man had, uh, it's bound to leave a bruise. And then seeing the death certificate that said cause of death unknown and hearing Stanley Burroughs and all that, it's I just got to think it was uh, time to go. That was the the steps involved. So then we had to give him three and a half days, which we did, and we... We took turns, we stood guard, we made sure that somebody was with him all times, 24 hours, chanting. See, his, his, body, his body was laying lying there, but his soul was still alive, his spirit was still alive, and I, I, I could feel it. And we did his chanting circle at all times, the man that he was being chanted, and we did a candle to put the candle to head, and we had flowers. And light incense <laughs> as the body started to decay. And uh, after three and a half days, he called and said, Come pick him up. And the ambulance came and picked him up, and they took him down, and he was cremated. And um, but nothing happened from it. He had I any mean, put in jail or anything. When the women went to pick up the ashes, they got him in a wooden urn. There was shrapnel in it, which he had in his body from the war. And then there was three long spiked nails, very odd shaped. They didn't have a head on them. They're actually called spikes. They're the original nails. Well, we actually asked what the other stuff was, and they said they're actually shrapnel that obviously was in his body from the war. And we went, okay, we can accept that. So he said, what are these three nails? I mean, there's no way that that could have gotten in there. We don't do that. We don't do anything with a body like that. So it's kind of like, you know, nails, cross, it's 
tiny bleeds of matter. <laughs> I didn't know this was going to work.
father who lived on this planet 28 years ago? Well, for a long time we tried to hold on to that, yes. But at this stage of the game, we've realized that what he wanted us to do was not hold on to his body. He's gone 28 years ago. But basically to trust in the ancient and sacred name heretofore hidden and to believe in that name, to put our faith in that name. He left us. He died. And um, we went on to create our individual lives. And that's how we really made a contribution. We, we thought we were going to live together forever and make a contribution to the world that way. And um, that didn't happen. Um, but who's to say what did happen wasn't even greater than that. Than that possibility, I think it was. Really do. I think that it was very purposeful that he did die and get out of the picture. I think it was unfortunate. There might have been other possibilities, but in terms of our our growth as individuals and taking responsibility, I think that that was really served by the family breaking up. You know, in those times, it was like trying to get a lot of people to pretty much think the same way about something. And that was good. That got us together. And now it feels like the people that I respect are are turning people back onto themselves more and going out and uh, all of us coming from our own enlightened self-interest. And have that be the example. And I think we'll all get to know each other a lot faster when we get that. One time I was in the family, I had a vision. And it was like I was in the desert. And far away, I could, uh, I've been there a long time and nothing, nothing, nothing. And I saw something move way far away. I couldn't see what it was. And I started towards it, and as I got closer and I could see it better, I could see that it would go flop every once in a while. And then I got closer, it was this huge big book. And every once in a while, a little breeze would come and a page would turn. And every time a page would turn, one of us got up out of the book and walked out of it. And I feel like that's more where we're at now. It's now we're out of the book and it's the living word and we don't have to keep talking about it in those terms. Just go to it be regular people and say regular words. There were so many people in the family that went on to do such great things, positive things, and are still doing great positive things. But, you know, I hardly can consider it a cult, although I'm really trying to come to terms with that word because I'm learning now that cult isn't necessarily a negative connotation it's just that most people put it that way so if we were a cult okay we were a cult but we were a good cult you know like Glenda was a good witch <laughs> many of the people in the family are sort of embarrassed that they were in the source family afraid to admit it in public. Um, I've had to learn to be very, very discreet. I do not proselytize. He never asked us, but he asked us not to proselytize. I also do not deny him. If anybody asks me if I remember the Source family, I will talk to them about it. And when they ask me to elaborate, there's one thing that I usually say, and I will tell them that I am 58 years old. I've walked millions of miles on this planet. I've had a lot, a very full life and a lot of experiences. And I've raised three amazing sons and had an amazing family for 25 years. And 
I was with Yehoah for one year, less than one year, and he was away from me during at least six months of that time. I was in his presence for less than six months. But at 58 years old and with this incredible life, probably still 50% of my memories come out of six months of my life. And that's what I tell people, and that's what I know, that's what I believe. And if that's not enough to give them some frame of reference of what kind of power uh, we experienced, then that, that's all I've got for them. Um, it's not worth proselytizing. It's not worth trying to convince anyone of anything. It doesn't matter to me if somebody else accepts this or not. It's not their experience. It's fine. But to not experience the family, to not experience Yehoah, I wouldn't give that up for the world. In my life, I absolutely have no regret. Yehoah was a turning point in my life. Ultimately, what was more powerful was uh, Jim Baker's, you know, Yehoah's father's, whatever, his children to grow up and become individuals and make their contribution in their own in their own world and um, you know if you're a child you don't stay home with your parents forever you know you gotta get a life and like we've all kind of separated and gone into the world and done our thing but it's all, we all kind of find each other and have this deep connection the source family has uh, to me become worldwide now it's no longer just this little little group it's it's here now it's in all of us it's in our hearts it's it's not in some book somewhere it's just in the, our lifestyle is, it's like Jesus is, is just us you know choose us <laughs> and then Father always told us in, 19, in the 1970s, he always said, September 17th, 8 p.m., 2001, he said, you must gather as a family. 8 p.m.'s curtain call. People who hadn't been in contact for years showed up on that date because we had it hammered in our heads. 8 p.m., September 17th, 2001, don't be late. It was like this big showtime. We raise our glasses to do 8 p.m. curtain call toast to start the new play. Now, I had looked up. He always said, go to Webster's second edition. That is the true dictionary. Because that dictionary has spiritual meanings. You called it the Aquarian Bible. I looked up curtain call. And it said, to give applause or acknowledgement to the end of a play. And it was perfect. Exactly what this is. Coming back together and acknowledging each other, putting an end to this play or this act, and starting a new one in the way that we want to with those who want to. You know, it's like the new play to go into the new age with. We raise our glasses to the 8 p.m. toast, and all of a sudden this picture falls, nobody is even near. This picture falls off the stand and shatters. And we're sitting there with our glasses raised, and it's like, we didn't know whether to freak out or what to do. And somebody said, I think it was Electra, said, wow, 
Father has shattered and gone into each of us. We are all now Yehoah. We are all the same. We are all equal. And it was like, yay, yes, you know, the new place. And it was just like, it was so incredible. And it was like, from there we did, we took it, said, okay, this is a new start. There's no more council running anything. There's not the women. We're all equal. We're all elders. And what do we want to do with it now? That Trichy and I formed the first foundation. Then we decided we had to get a board together. We, by then, had realized that we needed to have a corporation, and we had passed a motion to create a corporation, and we passed a motion to name that corporation the Source Foundation, which is a legal for-profit corporation in the state of Hawaii now. We got that corporation together. We have done many things for this family, most of which has gone unnoticed by many of the people, but no sour grapes, just facts. We have created a little beachhead, a little foundation for this family for the future. We have um, now bought a piece of land uh, in Hawaii, five acres, five spectacularly beautiful tropical acres. The first time in history, 30 years that the source, over 30 years that the source, found, the source family has actually owned land. And we are working um, to create a community. We've got this uh, over 40 acres that we're planning on uh, fully farming and, uh, and developing into a conscious um, uh, source family again. Uh, at first, we thought we were putting together a dome community and consciousness center, and now we're kind of joking that we're actually putting together a, um, an Aquarian retirement community, but, you know, that's kind of a joke. We're basically having fun, and we're trying to create a future for this family. Are we visualizing that everybody will live together? Probably not. As a matter of fact, I'm not even sure I'd want to do that. I feel like it is a continuation of the Source family, but it's like a world family now. It's like the Source family uh, was a small little group. Now I'm finding there's groups all over the place with similar visions and, and living it already. Like that kind of broke apart and everybody stopped kind of living the, the truth. The source was an experiment. It was not a failure. When it was time to disband, it disband. More accurately or more fully, what his quotation was, crash programs are very seldom successful, children, but yet that's what we're called upon to do. And he used to say, we're like the shock troops that hit the beachhead first and break the waves for the rest of the troops. I think the greatest rewards... Uh, lie uh, waiting for our children. I think the valuable questions are the ones that focus on what his intent was. What was this being's, what was this being's intent? And um, and then what was the effect of that? intent on himself, on his environment, and on the people that were attracted to him. And on this time right now, and the effect, how those people were transformed, and how they're transforming their own world. There were children that never would have been born, you know, had not they gotten together under 
the direction of this great parent. They would have been abandoned. They would have been aborted. Um, they would have been raised in stifling religions. Nobody has even come that close to walking their talk like Yehoah did. 24-7, 365. We got up every morning to meditate, like at 3 o'clock in the morning. We'd start getting up and we'd gather at 4. There weren't holidays and birthdays. There was no exception. Our life was consistent. We had class every morning. We got up and communed with the forces of universal life energy. We used the keys. We were living on a whole different paradigm. It was very funny that um, people assumed the gossip was that we were all under the mind control of the Svengali. When in fact, if you look at America in the 50s and in the 60s, it's total mind control, you know? And it is today, too, with consumerism and uh, religion and politics. Um, you know, media is very highly controlled. And what's acceptable and not acceptable, what's good, what's bad, it's all defined uh by structures of authority outside of you. And the individual is never celebrated. The individual the individual's in trouble. You know? So Jim Baker was about self you know, full self expression. And um and giving us that confidence. That's you know, that's what he had. That was his gift and uh it altered me. He said to us that all of his sons would be greater than he is. That's the only thing he ever said that I think is... And I know that he knew that he was trying to give us a goal. He set us a goal to, to attain. When people would come to the family and they'd say, Oh, I met this new guy. He's so awesome. He's so conscious. He's amazing. you really got to meet this guy. A lot, of, a lot of times your hoe would listen to them and you need to look at them and say, does he still two pounds a day? Is he still in this body? Because if he's still in this body, he's still evolving. If he thinks he's evolved, they got news for him. If he had evolved completely, he wouldn't be here on this earth. So he'd be able to transmute that body and move on. Within the story of Jim Baker and his spiritual troop of 144 unconventionals, I found something more substantial than the common notion of a cult. I found, well, instead of generic implications of suicide or brainwashing, I found something more attuned to, say, Henry David Thoreau's grand experiment at Walden. I found a recurrent utopian vision of America and a story of one new religious movement's attempts to truly put the foundations under what they believe to be the cultural and religious designs of a country's founding fathers.
and in attempting to lead the world from the Piscean Age into the Aquarian Age, they were in effect fashioning a different sort of patriotism than the contemporary standard, one that encompassed everything from a type of psychedelic rock and roll spontaneity to a vegetarian and mostly raw foods diet. And these are all patterns that are showing up again in contemporary society. I think spontaneous and psychedelic sorts of of music, of rock and roll, are starting to catch on. In terms of the religion, it's starting to catch on. I have only one example for you right now. If we look at my latest issue of Cosmo, we can see Madonna and Friends talking about Kabbalah. And if we look at 1970s coverage of, of health food and compare that to today's coverage, I think it's also surprising. While it may have been a fad at that time, it makes sense to people now. And I'm not trying to imply that the Source family, that Jim Baker or Yehoah was responsible for all of this. I'm only trying to hint at the fact that there is a pattern, that there is a link of some sort between them, that they were actually on to something in the 70s, that the Source family does have some meaning in today's society, and it's worth looking at. Now, all of this, this, uh, this rock and roll, this diet, and everything that the Source family was about, I think, in my opinion, this is what we might describe as their redefined vision of the spirit of 76. The spirit of 76. And the idea here is that there is a religious design behind the United States that somewhere along the way was was lost. And it was their responsibility to reestablish that. It was Jim Baker's responsibility to become Yehoah to re-embody the spirit of 76, to lead and create change through example and action. It was the Source family's responsibility to come together, to at least attempt this different way of life from the norm, from the American norm at that time. And whether this was all an experiment or perhaps destiny, in reflection, this all, this all seems unimportant. It's up to us to be willing to look back upon these far-out attempts and ideals to see just what's possible with religious freedom with the chance to pursue the borderlands of culture. And while what they're doing may have been based on ancient teachings, I think when you 
put it all into the context of Los Angeles in the 1970s, this was something completely new and different. I mean, we're talking about people who saw themselves as Atlanteans, and here I mean the lost civilization under the sea, not uh, not Atlanta, Georgia, Atlanteans who were serving food and hanging out on the Sunset Strip and having an effect on culture. And I think this speaks for itself in their story and their music. And so I encourage you to go out and find a copy of Penetration and Aquarian Symphony and see just what they were and perhaps what we all are up to as humans. And with that, uh, I say good evening. Okay, this video was called Revisiting Father and Source Family, cult leader Jim Baker. <clears throat> so anyways, interesting perspective. I noticed the first thing, of course, as someone now, if this was a couple of years earlier or ago, uh, I never would have even recognized it, but now since I've been studying reading the Bible, I noticed that they didn't really talk anything about the Bible. It talked about every other thing but the Bible. Huh? As far as Jesus go, uh, someone said, well, yeah, that he was... No one said that he was the Son of God or that he was God incarnate. Um, what they did say was is that Jim Baker is not the equivalent of Jesus or God incarnate. <laughs> well, and interesting too, the connections that that young man got with 1776 and um, the Source family, uh, just because the folks studied the founding fathers of 1776 and discovered, like many folks have, for uh, quite a while now, um, that they were all a bunch of Freemasons and that uh, George Washington's generals were Freemasons doesn't mean necessarily that they were trying to, you know, rediscover America's religious roots. Hardly from it. It seems clear to me that Jim Baker was interested in everything but the Word of God. And that would make sense because if he actually studied the Word of God, that would contend him in his behavior. And, um, yeah. So, of course, you would have to study things like uh, uh, Eastern mysticism and Western mysticism and things like uh, 
the cabal and yoga and this kundalini force and of course freemasonry and theosophy and everything else but don't touch that bible don't touch the word of god because if he did how long do you think that he would have the ability the right to have that cult to have sex with those 13 women 13 kept on showing up in his religion didn't it and walking around in stars and stripes with 13 stripes on their clothes. That's amazingly, this man shot down 13 airplanes in World War II in Pearl Harbor. Have you ever noticed that a lot of these cult leaders have such embellished histories? Amazing, heroic histories. Yes. Who was this guy? Who was this man? One thing's for certain, he wasn't a God-fearing man. He's a man who taught himself to be God. <laughs> and all these people blinded by him. And sure, he offered them a unique experience that most of us will never have. And certainly, when we look at uh, this cult, uh, the Source family, it certainly has been a contributing factor in many ways. I was listening to the music and the bass lines, and you know what it reminded me of? Like bands like Red Hot Chili Peppers that came out of the same that same area. Interesting, isn't it? When at the end of the day, these folks an experiment of Luciferianism with a commune uh, community, a community, uh, but this community was whacked by a leader and, yeah, surely most of us never get that experience. And I understand, because I was in that space one time, I was in that place, uh, trying to find something meaningful in a world that's so fallen and wicked. I still am in, in some ways. But as I discover the truth about this world, there's never that much that's meaningful. <laughs> Especially when it comes to men, and men who are guided by Satan. So, I don't know. I hope you get something out of it. I hope you didn't realize, you hope you realize that I'm not supporting Source Family. I don't think the Source Family. Uh, I'm not giving the two thumbs up, but you know what? They were influential. A lot more than we realize, and I see their influence um, uh, carrying on theosophy, uh, theosophy um, the. Uh, uh, Indian or Eastern mysticism. Uh, we see it carrying in through churches. Um, when I was a New Ager and in AA, hey, unity. That's what it was. Metaphysical Christianity. Taking away the divinity of Christ. Taking away the, the truth about God and the grand old lie that you could be God. And, of course, people, many of these people, by the way, end up being very, very successful. It seems that Satan serves them very well. 
uh, and they have big homes and fortunes, and they're nuttier than all get out. And they don't know God. As Christ says, what profits a man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Yep. What does a profit? Uh, a guy like me, I'd be their enemy. I also know how those people are, too, by the way. And by the way, it's not just them. It's most groups, if not all groups. <laughs> a guy like me, I started getting sick with MS. Ooh, they dropped me like a ton of bricks. Threw me to the curb. Threw me under the bus, as they say. <clears throat> so, just one more example of that. And by the way, whether Christian, the most people call themselves Christians, or New Agers, or the Source family, or uh, Luciferians, or whoever they may be, odds are most of them would throw you under the bus if you ask to too, too many penetrating questions or too honest and you get sick because that shatters their illusion that both everything that they do all their spirituality and all their legalism and all their uh, uh, religious practices like meditation somehow will save them from the same fate that all the rest of us go through. Only in reality, they're damning their souls. Also, the other thing too is I noticed is that, you know, I know something I was interested in too and hoping that maybe there's something like a commune, that there's some kind of thing out there that could really make a difference. And it's always the same thing. A young group, is always a new batch of young idealistic folks in their teens and early 20s. Uh, and there's always the mother hen, the gurus, who basically exploit these people uh, to work their farms and their whatever their community is about and, and building houses and doing all these things. They're actually just using these young people. They don't realize this. They're no different than a corporate CEO or a pastor from some corporate 501c3 church. It's a sad reality. It is a sad reality. One more empty promise. One more empty promise in the schemes of men. Isn't it interesting how we just use each other? None of us are exempt. We all use each other. It's not right, though. And why is that? Because we don't really take what Jesus has to really say, do we? We don't take what God has to say. Seriously, do we? We never did. It's quite tragic, really. Now I understand why. And... The way that God is so narrow. And why most of us won't ever get there, because we just don't believe what Jesus had to say. Anyways, we're done with the uh, Source family, another cult of many, 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 many in this country, 
in this country's history. One thing is for certain when it comes to religion in this country, oh boy, talk about a cult factory. But that doesn't make this country unique. In fact, if one looks at all countries, it's all the same thing over and over again. But somehow, we think that we're different. We're unique, the center of the world, and yet we are not. Anyways, God bless. Take care of yourself. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.